0: Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians where Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have learned while we were memorizing the Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. This podcast is intended for medical professionals. The information is to be used in the context of your own clinical judgment, and those on this podcast accept no liability for the outcomes of medical decisions based on this information. As the radiologists like to say, clinical correlation is required. This is not medical advice, and even though the magic of podcasting may make it seem like we're speaking directly in your ears, this does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. If you have a medical problem, seek medical attention. And now, here's Dr. Bradley
1: Block. Welcome back to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. On today's episode, we speak to Dr. Percy Francisco Morales, a cardiac electrophysiologist in Houston who is also known as Dr. AFib because of all the online content he's created under that moniker. We talk about the main tenets of managing AFib, why getting your patient to an electrophysiologist sooner rather than later helps their long-term prognosis in nuanced onset AFib, why we expect most people to be off Coumadin soon, and some of the procedures he uses to get patients out of AFib or off of anticoagulation. Welcome back to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. On today's episode, we have Dr. Percy Francisco Morales, a fellowship-trained cardiac electrophysiologist who is sometimes known by his alter ego, Dr. AFib. He's created a lot of online content to help his patients and other patients understand atrial fibrillation. And so he's on the show today to help the physician community better understand this pathology. So Francisco, thank you so much for being on the show today.
2: Thank you, Bradley. Thank you for having me on the show. I enjoy listening to your podcast.
1: Thanks. It's always always nice to meet a fan. So, um, So first of all, just introduce our Introduce yourself to establish uh, some street cred with the audience. Where was your training? What was your training in? And then we'll we'll, we'll start off talking about that alter ego of yours.
2: Okay. Well, I'm originally from Chicago, born, born and raised, and then uh, went to college at the University of Illinois. But then I eventually went over to Washington University for medical school, uh, which is great medical school there, uh, a lot of great teachers over there. However, when I was there at school, I actually ended up doing my general surgery rotations through the months of December, January, and February. And there was a lot of brutal cold at that those times of years and scraping ice off of my car. And that's when I officially said that I am done with uh, the cold weather. And so I pretty much, when it came time for my intern year and applying for residency, I was only looking at stuff in the in the southern hemisphere, for the, I mean, in the south of the country for the most part. And that I ended up matching at Baylor College of Medicine for my internship and residency. And they ended up staying there ever since uh, um, for the next several years for training. I did my general medicine fel- uh, residency there, I did my cardiology fellowship there, as well as my electrophysiology training there, all in the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And then once the, my training finished about six years ago now, I ended up joining a private practice group over in the uh, Northeast Houston suburbs.
1: I can completely empathize with your cold situation. I I went to medical school in Buffalo, and I just remember leaving the library and my eyeballs freezing open because it was so cold. The the one benefit, though, was, of course, as as medical students, we were the last ones to leave the library. We were always Mm -hmm. close it out. So an empty parking lot full of snow was was great to learn how to do spin outs in your car.
2: well, I will say in the past thirteen years I've been in Houston. I've probably only seen snow maybe two or three times it doesn't stay on the ground, and I don't really miss it.
1: You don't miss it yeah, you could always you could always travel somewhere if you want to go skiing, but
2: uh... yeah, I mean, growing up in Chicago, I feel like I've had enough snow to last me my lifetime, so <laughs> I'm pretty good with that.
1: So how does your alter ego feel about the snow?
2: Well, um, my alter ego is Dr. AFib, uh, which is an online educational platform that I started about a year ago now. I actually just recently just hit my one-year mark of of starting my online uh, platform. And I recently, I really started this because, you know, I mean, I'm sure you see this in ENT, but you just get a lot of the same questions, you know, and people ask a lot of the same questions about their diseases. And for me, doing electrophysiology, I mean, atrial fibrillation is probably over ninety percent of the patients that I I take care of. And so, about a year ago, I started thinking, you know, is um, I was really kind of reaching for a way to kind of extend my reach and a way to be able to education educate patients better, and just to to create something that you know belonged uh, to. Me that I could create and and control and kind of control the content and control the direction of where it would go, and so I created Dr. Afib uh, about a year ago now, and you know started off with a few small videos on Facebook, and soon realized that this is something that people were genuinely interested, in. there's somewhere around. 5 million people in the United States with AFib and over 30 million across the globe that have AFib. And it's still a disease that a lot of people don't really understand. And it can be pretty uh, complicated to really understand some of the features of the disease. And that's why I started doing Dr. AFib about a year ago and you know wanted to give it a catchy name too. And I've you know, really seen people really like the
1: name as well. So how does the dynamic work in your office? I'm, I was wondering about that because if i were to create some content about say tonsillectomy right mm-hmm. if i were to tell parents well i think your child would benefit from an adenotonsillectomy here watch this video that i made i'll be back in 10 minutes while i go see my next patient I, you know i i can't see that dynamic working that well because you know they 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 need to trust you, the, the rapport, I feel like there'd be mm-hmm. an issue with the rapport there. Is that how you use this content? Oh, no, no, not at all. I mean,
2: the this Dr. AFib is completely like a side gig, educational content, educational platform. You know, my day job of, you know, being an electrophysiologist and seeing patients, you know, it, the, the rapport is really no different. You know, I still answer the same questions all day, you know, to the patients in, in person, you know. This online platform was to kind of extend my reach and to reach patients and and educate people far more than what I could do just by seeing people in person. So they're kind of separate things. Dr. Afib is a little bit separate from Dr. Morales, even though there's a lot of intertwine between the two. I kind of my as far as how I manage patients is, you know, really still hasn't really changed at all.
1: Okay. So you don't you don't use it during the office visit as a way to uh, educate the patients, you, you direct, you might tell them about it after they leave the office. Hey, if you, if you want to learn more about your condition, I have this platform here where you can find more information, but as you're answering, you're still answering the questions. It doesn't change that physician patient. No, not at all. My, my office visits are
2: still exactly the same, but like you said, at the end, I do have, I have made some Dr. AFib business cards, which I kind of say, Hey, if you're interested in more educational content, if you're interested completely optional take a look at this site you know but it, the actual encounter patient visit you know really hasn't changed at all
1: so most of it is is tailored or all of it is tailored for the patient population but the reason you're on this show today is actually to talk to the physician and clinician population so uh, if you had a medical student rotating with you and you didn't know what specialty they were going into what would be some of the things you would want them to take away from Atrial fibrillation, or or you can even talk about elect other electrophysiologic issues. Although, given that you said ninety percent of what you do is AFib, we should probably focus most of it on on atrial fibrillation.
2: Um, Especially if someone was a medical student, there'd be a couple of points for me to point out. I mean, first thing I would try to tell people is like, don't be intimidated by this disease. I think people get kind of like they just look at it, EKG or they see a person's heart rate's going 130 and they just throw their hands up in the air and they say, I don't know what to do with this, you know, <laughs> or, or, you know, fix it. You know, I'm like, it's not, it's okay. Just settle down. You know, it's uh control the heart rate, understand their risk of stroke, you know, and it's this is very manageable condition. And um, then I would try to f- tell, try to encourage people about how interesting it can be to manage people who have atrial fibrillation or doing electrophysiology because I'm not really as aware of other fields of medicine that have so much of a mesh between um, health as you know healthcare and medicine but as well as technology I mean there is so much technology in the world of electrophysiology as well as with uh, taking care of AFib patients when it comes to the equipment and the ablations and uh, all the the, the the monitoring devices I mean it's we get called the, the electrician for a reason, but yeah, it's kind of a nickname that a lot of electrophysiologists get because there's a lot of mesh between technology and, and uh, the diseases as well as health well as well as far as managing them.
1: So what what are some of the cooler gadgets that you end up using? Because I, I finished medical school, you know, we talked before the show, we're about the same age. I finished medical school in 2006. And so... I would imagine there's a lot that's changed technology-wise since then. So what's some of the newer, cooler stuff out there that uh, that people might find interesting?
2: Well, the newest stuff has been all the kind of home monitoring and wearable technology. I mean, they're really getting, like, even Apple's getting into the world of atrial fibrillation. You know, the newest generation of Apple Watch is going to, can automatically tell you if you're an AFib or not. And uh, there's so, several so other like home. So like the iFib? basically I'm sure they haven't they didn't say that specifically i fit but that's probably a name that they'll probably co- come up with as well but uh, the Apple watch can do it there's other, other wearable home technology as well um, there's another big company called uh, uh, Cardia. Uh, is the name of the product that they do also the same thing and you can kind of just put your your fingers on a sensor and it'll tell you on an app on your phone if you're an afib or not and they're pretty accurate they have an FDA clearance and so they're pretty accurate devices so this whole world of at home map monitoring and at home technology is just rapidly growing
1: so are you with this new technology are you catching more patients that otherwise might not have been diagnosed?
2: Um, I wouldn't say that I'm catching more patients being diagnosed just yet. Um, I'm sure that that will change. I mean the latest generation Apple Watch was just announced like in September, so I can't really say I haven't been seen it much change things in practice, but probably the biggest use of it now for, for me and my patients is that, you know, I have plenty of patients and you may have some too that they live far away from your practice, you know, and, and sometimes it's hard for the patients even to know if they're an AFib or they just say, hey, my heart rate's going fast today. Could, could I be an AFib? And instead of coming down to the office, you can send a strip from home and and send it through email over to our practice. And then I can tell you what's going on. And you know? so this kind of helping to manage things for people, especially who are further away from the, from the office has been a pretty useful thing about these at-home monitors.
1: So how do those monitors work? You have to, the patient puts the
2: leads on themselves? So the, the, no, there's a couple of different options. And so there's probably one of the more popular ones is a little device called the Cardia. And it's, all, it's about three or four centimeters long. It's got these two little electrodes that you put your fingers on. And the thing, you put it, like, you put it on a table, and you put your fingers on there and then that little gadget transmits to an app on your phone, which it has like, you know, its own kind of algorithm that will tell you if you're an AFib or not. And it's like a, getting a single lead EKG. So they're pretty
1: cool. Wow. Yeah, that is that is pretty interesting. So you you mentioned before, if there is a rate of 130, don't let it intimidate you. The two things are rate control and stroke risk. I mean,
2: those those are treatments one and two for any patients that have atrial fibrillation. And and I frequently describe these to, to patients and, and that it's like two hands in a sense, like you have to treat the symptoms on one side and then treat the risk of stroke on the other side. And they're very separate things And people like, people think that they're both kind of together, you know, but you have to kind of manage them kind of separately. You know, there's either controlling the rate or controlling the symptoms or minimizing symptoms, uh, which can involve a variety of different uh, medications, and, or, whether it's something simple like beta blockers or more complicated medications like antiarrhythmic medications. And then there's risk of stroke. And that's what typically involves your blood thinning medications, like your warfarin or your newer medications like Xarelto or Neloquist and those other types of blood thinners.
1: Speaking of which, so as an ENT, I encounter this a lot in my practice. The atrial patient with atrial fibrillation and an active nosebleed on Mm -hmm. blood thinners, uh, whether they're on one or multiple blood thinners. And sometimes it's not such a bad nosebleed and it's fine, stay on your blood thinners. Uh, But then sometimes it's pretty challenging to Mm -hmm. control. And so sometimes I try and figure out for the patient what their stroke risk is going to be if they go off of their blood thinners for just a little bit. So correct me if I'm wrong. And and clearly there's going to be a range because some people have paroxysmal AFib and some people are always in AFib. Um, But the the main risk is like 5% per year, not on anticoagulation, but I think it's 2% per year on anticoagulation. So in general,
2: when people are on anticoagulation, in most of the studies, the risk of stroke was somewhere around 2%. Um, but uh, in the, being on anticoagulation reduces the risk of stroke, usually somewhere around 65 to 70%. Uh, as far as the risk of stroke not being on a blood thinners, is based off of their risk factors. And that's what where the uh, CHADS-VASc Risk Score comes in, where you've taken account people's Age and whether they have high blood pressure, diabetes, or they've had a past stroke, and that kind of factors in what their risk of, of stroke is, which can range from zero for people who have very low stroke, risk of stroke, to all the way to around 18% if they have all the risk factors for risk of stroke. But going back to your question about being awful of blood thinners when somebody has, you know, made significant bleeding. And, you know, when I'm managing my patients, is the fact of the matter, you have to go with what the clinical scenario is, you know, I mean, those risks of strokes are based on an annual risk stroke, you know, so there's no really way to calculate to say if a patient is off of blood thinners for two days, the risk of stroke is going to be X or Y, you know, that number that the risk going system that we have is based off of a annual risk of stroke, you know, so there so. happens all the time where my patients are on blood thinners and they either have a clinical bleeding issue or they have a procedure that they're coming up and we have to stop the blood thinners and just just go with the clinical scenario and you know there's very very few people that in my practice uh, that I actually will say like either no you can't or you have to use short-term blood thinners like Lovenox but well for the most part it's perfectly fine to stop the blood thinner for a day or two, especially these newer blood thinners. I mean, their half-life is somewhere between 12 to 18 hours. And so uh, the usual recommendations for like Eliquis or Xarelto, since they're very popular newer medications, is that uh, you know one day off for minor procedures and two days off for more major
1: procedures. So I just did a little quick math. And uh, if If it's the highest highest risk patient, which is 18% per year, and you take them off for a week, so let's say you know 52 weeks in a year, so 18% divided by 52 looks like it's around a 0.3%. And that math might be wrong. I think there was like a negative number and maybe an imaginary number in there when I tried to do that. (laughs) (laughs) But but I think it's like. 0.3% 0.3% per year. So if I ask my my patient who is actively bleeding to just stop their Zarelto, even if they're the highest risk patient, it looks like they have a 0.3%. So I can tell them that you know your risk of stroke in this one week is extremely low, and given that you're actively bleeding, mm-hmm. uh, but in the end probably I should just call up their cardiologist and have that conversation with them anyway to uh, to to let them help me mitigate that risk.
2: Yeah, that's always the the safer. But in general, I mean, it happens all the time. You just have to go with the clinical scenario. And I mean, I wish I could say I haven't seen any patients that had a stroke after just being off of blood a blood thinner for you know very short amount of time because it, it has happened. Just, but it's pretty rare. And uh, it's my overall kind of practice is that you know if there's a clinical need for it, you just go ahead and you stop the blood thinners.
1: Well, you know, I, if you see enough patients, you're going to see some of those outcomes. So mm-hmm. in, a, in yep. a high volume practice. Um, so let's say you have, uh, say, a rural physician who doesn't have easy access to an, erect- an electrophysiologist. And they're in a community hospital. They encounter a patient who just had a stroke. They're, because of their stroke, they are diagnosed with AFib. How do you begin your workup?
2: Um, well, when they're first diagnosed with a stroke, Obviously, of course, first important thing is, you know, we have from the stroke and, you know, kind of getting better from whatever their initial hospitalization is. And as far as initial treatment, especially somebody who's a either primary care or really doesn't take care of a lot of AFib patients, you know, probably one of the most important, most common treatment strategies that are given are probably just rate controlling medications like beta blockers or calcium channel blockers. uh, many physicians, whether you're a cardiologist or not, are very comfortable with using beta blocker medications. And then pretty, most people are very comfortable with starting them on anticoagulation. You know, if they're there for a stroke, I always kind of make sure that a neurologist kind of is saying it's okay to start them on anticoagulation because sometimes if it's a Big stroke, you know, they may say, okay, wait 24 or 48 hours to make sure you don't have hemorrhagic conversion or something like that, you know, but uh, once they say it's okay to start blood thinners, you know, you go ahead and start the blood, blood thinners immediately. I tend to like these newer blood thinning medications like uh, Xarelto and Eloquiz better just because they're pretty stable, consistent blood thinning option. Uh, and, you know, the the, level, the levels of the endocrine effects are pretty steady with those medications.
1: So are we going to see everybody off of Coumadin now? Is that, is that what's going to happen with these newer medications?
2: Um, probably, you know, I honestly rarely ever start medication people on Coumadin nowadays. Um, really the main 100% indication these days is still uh, mechanical uh, heart valves. You know, you, there's really none of those medications have been tested in that scenario, but when it comes to AFib or other things that need, you know, DVT or PEs, like these medications are becoming the standard usage now. And honestly, probably the only reason why I use Coumadin nowadays tends to be because of cost related reasons. I mean, there's just a lot of patients that these newer medications, the copays are just too expensive for them. And, you know, they may try to pay for it for a little while, but then they realize, you know, especially patients who are on Medicare, it's just too expensive for them. And in those cases, you know, probably one of the main ones that I put them on Coumadin.
1: Because their, the, the labs that go into Coumadin, I guess just the way the coverage works, maybe a bit more the labs are covered rather than the medication, because I'm sure that in the total cost plays into it because you don't need to monitor these medications with serial yeah. INR like you do with Coumadin.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. But I guess that the out-of-pocket amounts of the patients and the pain this ends up being more with these uh, newer medications.
1: Yeah, which is just a product of our system rather than the genuine difference in cost. Although I'm sure there's a genuine difference in cost there too, even with the labs, just because Coumadin is so is so cheap. Yeah. Yeah. i and mean, obviously
2: uh, I would have to think about the actual cost of the labs and everything together, but I'm I'm sure that the cost of the newer blood thing is probably still more expensive at this time. But you know, the first ones that come out, uh which I believe was Pradaxis, I think that's somewhere around seven years old now i mean so it's probably not still several years away before any of these medications become generic but it's not super far time from now
1: well that, and then and then everybody's off coumadin
2: probably unless you have a like i said a mechanical heart valve. mechanical so heart valve. A clear indication that you have to take, take it for for a mechanical valve
1: so let's let's talk about some of those other gadgets that you have maybe not gadgets but uh a, Procedures, um, ablations versus cardioversion. When when do you use one? When do you use the other? And and what are the indications for either of those?
2: Um, well, I think this give, brings up a pretty um, good point that I kind of wanted to emphasize to your audience is about the whole area of rhythm control procedures, whether it's ablations or cardioversions. You know, I think for a lot of Doctors out there, especially people who maybe have a little bit of experience or a little bit who have managed somewhat, a little bit patients who have AFib, there's some people out there that have impressions that you know, ablations or cardioversions don't work or the AFib comes back, you know, and uh, some of that is true, you know. I mean, there's certainly no 100% cure for AFib, meaning there's no one shot thing that you get it done and you never ever, the rest of the patient's life have to worry about. AFib anymore, but, but the patients can be dramatically improved and stay out of the hospital. There's certainly a lot of benefit from it. Now, what I wanted to point out was that AFib is a disease of progression. And the more that people have AFib, the more the heart inherently changes. And, uh, you know, even on a molecular level, the heart changes. Now, we're not going all the way back to the Krebs cycle, but you know, we're I'm talking about like action potentials, like thank you for that. sodium, calcium channels. Yeah, I I don't remember too much about the Krebs cycle, but I know about <laughs> action potentials, you know. And uh, you know, they, they inherently change. The longer people have a fib, the heart from a molecular standpoint changes, they get more dilation, they get more scarring in their heart, and the heart inherently changes. And people to be able to have higher success rates and have better outcomes in the treatment of their AFib, the earlier that that they get treatments like a cardioversion or an ablation, the less long-term damage has been done to the heart. And so that success rate will be better. And I think that's something that a a lot of other doctors don't really know or understand. You know, a lot of times I'll get a patient sent to me who's, you know, their previous doctor or, you know, they've had AFib for a year or two and they've been trying around different medications and it's not working. And I say, well, I wish I would have met you a year or two ago, you know, when it was just kind of in this early starting out process and we could have had a higher success for trying to really have a really good handle of your atrial fibrillation. So I just kind of wanted to emphasize that it is a disease that progresses. And the sooner that people get expert consultation or the sooner they get put on either whether it be medications or cardioversions or ablation procedures, you know the the better that success rate is.
1: So that that stroke patient in the rural hospital, in all likelihood, probably just statistically had that atrial fibrillation for a while until they developed a stroke. So that's not the patient that you're referring to. And plus, they're right, clearly in the stroke ward of the hospital, they're not going to. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be in your office anytime soon. But if, if, say, that same rural physician in their outpatient practice sees a patient that maybe has a couple of days of fluttering in their chest, get that, patient to an, get that patient to get in the car or however the safest mode of transportation is, but get that person to an electrophysiologist as soon as possible because then you're going to have the highest likelihood of controlling that patient long term.
2: Yeah, and and obviously, there's ranges in all of this. You know, it doesn't mean they have one episode of AFib that they have to go get an an ablation done or, or, you know, have a procedure done or have a to see an electrophysiologist, but there's certainly a progression. I mean, when I meet patients with AFib, they're going to tell me a common story. They had an episode of AFib and then maybe they didn't have anything again for a year or two, and then started getting it more frequent and lasting longer. And it's just, it's a disease of progression. And, you know, and the further along, along that progression that the patient is, the less the success rate of any type of procedures for AFib.
1: So then when are you using those procedures? Tell, tell me the indications for an ablation versus the indication for cardioversion.
2: So cardioversion, um, I tell people, is sort of a simple quick fix. You know, it's trying to get, you know, basically it's like, you know, I tell my patients, you have your phone, your TV just doesn't work, and you turn it off, you turn it back on again, but it doesn't fix the yeah, whatever the inherent problem is inside of the heart. And so, but it's a very simple thing to do. And so a lot of times cardioversions, I'll do them because uh, maybe it's the first time the patients have AFib and you just put them in back into normal rhythm and they may have normal rhythm for a long time. Or some people are a little bit too sick to really undergo an ablation procedure, which is certainly more aggressive. And so a cardioversion may be a better option. And another way I kind of do a use a cardioversion, a little bit of a test run, and I guess I say to see if their heart has advanced too far to where, you know, more aggressive options like an ablations are really not going to be successful. You know, to see if there are at the point of no return, where no matter what I do, it's just not going to be successful to to try to keep a person out of uh, out of a a fib. Uh, but when it comes to ablations, you know, the actual indications are. Pretty variable based on the stage of AFib. You know, when people have AFib, that comes and goes. You know, and you've been on at least one medication, and you're still symptomatic from it. That's a class one indication for doing it an, an ablation. Now, if you've been more advanced stages of AFib, um, you know it becomes more of a, I believe it's a two a the, the indication to do a, an ablation because the success rate is just not as good, but it's certainly it's still can be a better option than medication for a lot of people
1: and do you have a, a favorite procedure it was one that you you enjoy doing more than the others because um, cardioversion well, it makes you feel like you're on you're one of the doctors on er Just you know <laughs>
2: what uh, when it when it comes to cardioversions you know what I, I wish? You know, they make it seem on TV like people have the paddles that the shock of people. They don't have those anymore, so it's never as exciting anymore to shock somebody. You're just pressing buttons on a, on a machine now, you know? Like, I, I always wanted to have those kind of little paddles in the gel and, and shock somebody the, the way they do on TV, but, you know, they don't really have those kinds anymore.
1: Uh, you're, like, you're like swiping right instead of shocking the patient. Yeah, pretty much. You ready? Swipe. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> But when it comes to ablation, there's all different
2: types of equipment that I use now. And some of it just, again, it depends on where the patient is in their stage of of AFib. Um, You know, people who are at earlier stages of AFib, you know, the ablation procedure is a little bit uh, simpler. And there's all sorts of kind of one-shot kind of balloon technologies to help with the ablation procedure, which kind of makes the procedure a little more faster and more efficient, which I've started to, to like to use a little bit better. The balloon? People who are more, uh, yeah, so there's a, a freezing balloon called the cryo balloon, and basically you put a so you put a balloon in where the pulmonary veins are in the left atrium, because that's where the most of the AFib comes from, and so the balloon kind of inflates in each one of the pul- pulmonary veins, and then it freezes the antrum, uh, and it's kind of like a one-shot of an area, a blade in the area that can trigger most AFib. And so you can do these procedures in probably about an hour, hour and a half, which is a lot shorter than a lot of more traditional ablation procedures. Um, Obviously, people advance more into AFib, but, you know, you kind of need to change the equipment and do more of a traditional kind of burning catheter to kind of get a better control of their, their AFib. But all this is always in flux. I mean, there's always constantly new research coming out with new equipment and new
1: techniques to do it. I feel like there's a balloon manufacturer out there that just visits every single subspecialist and says, "Hey, hey, where can we use this balloon in your patients?" Because there's a yeah. balloon for the sinuses, there's a balloon for tracheal dilation, there's uh-huh. there's a balloon for electrophysiology. I feel like there's a balloon for everything. If you're not sure what probably, to do, just balloon, choose a balloon, just a balloon. Yeah. use a balloon, just use it for yeah. something, and then a laser because there's you know, I oh, work for everything. I have a laser too. Do you have a laser?
2: Um. You, it's okay. not really no. a
1: laser.
2: No. Okay. <laughs> no, I don't think there's really a, a practical laser. I've seen some stuff in like trials and described, but nothing that's really commonly used for a laser. It's
1: like a device looking for a home. Yeah. Do patients ever ask you that? Do you do you use a laser for that?
2: Um, no, but like I said, I, I at least when I was in fellowship, people were um one of my, my mentors was doing a, some clinical trial that involved a a balloon that used a laser, you know, and I and I—he's I got them the both. He's got balloons and lasers. That's <laughs> yeah, and uh, the patient—I remember seeing one patient. He was very excited. He's like, "I want the laser," and and uh, and the, I don't think that that technology has, really has panned out because I haven't really
1: seen it being used. You know, <sighs> I totally just my deflated my stuff. balloon. So, yeah. <laughs> Okay. So um is there anything else that we haven't touched upon that you think every physician, whether it's someone who treats AFib or someone who doesn't treat AFib, should know about atrial fibrillation?
2: Yeah, uh, there's actually one more thing that I think is a key thing that I think is important for, you know, people who see people bleed a lot on blood thinners, whether it's an ENT or a GI doctor or, or a urologist, who keeps seeing people bleeding over and over on blood thinners. And that's there are other options now you know um the main risk of stroke for people who have AFib fit um, comes from forming a thrombus in the left atrial appendage which is a small little kind of pocket pouch which is on the side of the left atrium i kind of tell my patients it's like the appendix of the heart it doesn't really contribute much to the heart function but it's kind of like this little blind pouch that that's where most of the thrombus forms and then where that's where the main risk of stroke comes from and um there's actually an emergence of of procedures and particularly one called a watchman where you basically put a plug in to seal that area off. And, uh, the watchman has been with approved about three years now. Uh, basically it just goes through a catheter, through the groin up to the heart and basically deploy this plug into the left atrial appendage. And, uh, they still have to stay on blood thinners, but only for about six weeks. And after about six weeks, we check it with an ultrasound, make sure everything looks nice and sealed off, and then they don't need it anymore. And it's that watch and plug was non inferior or equivalent to being on warfarin in terms of risk of stroke. And so there's a lot of patients out there to have these ever going cycles of, okay, put you back on blood thinners because you have a high risk of stroke. Okay, you're bleeding now. Okay, stop the blood thinners for a little bit. Okay, let's put you back on. Let's take it off. And they just keep going through these cycles over and over and over again. And there are better options for them now. And this is, this watchman procedure has been a very good option for those types of patients. How
1: long has that been around? About three years now. Okay. So, I mean, it sounds, if it's, if it's equivalent, it sounds like that might be a new trend for patients who aren't high risk for the procedure itself. Right. Because yeah, if I'm a patient, you, you know, you can either be on blood thinners or you could potentially get this procedure. Some patients are very fearful of procedures, especially something new like that. But some patients mm-hmm. have great concerns about being on the blood thinners. So especially with yeah. an active lifestyle.
2: And and one thing that I've always why I'm a big why I've been a big proponent of this watching procedure is that it, it was studied for a long time. It actually went through two clinical trials in the US. Uh, it was approved in Europe a long time ago. So there's many years of data behind it to show how well and effective it can be, you know, compared to just, you know, like the being compared to being on a blood thinner, it's equivalent, but compared to not being on a blood thinner for people who have legitimate bleeding his, history or bleeding issues, I mean, this is an excellent option for a lot of patients.
1: Wow. That's, that is exciting. So, um. Again, about your website, where can people find you? So, my main website is drafib.com. Um, that's where all
2: my content is there, all my blog posts, you know, all my videos, uh, links to my social media as well. Um, I'm also pretty active on Facebook as well as uh, Twitter. Um, Dr. Afib on the kind of uniform brand and platform throughout is Dr. Afib. Especially for any the other doctors who might want to reach out
1: to me, you know, you
2: can always find me on there, Francisco Morales, my uh, personal Facebook page as well.
1: Well, thank you so much for creating all that content to help not just your own patient, but but a lot of patients out there. And thank you for taking the time to educate us about atrial fibrillation, Dr. Percy Francisco Morales.
0: Thank
2: you, Bradley. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. I appreciate it.
0: That was Dr. Bradley Block at The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Find all previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and write us a review. You can also visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash doctoring. If you are interested in being a guest or have a question for a prior guest, send a message or post a comment.